0: Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda.
1: This week on The Agenda, talking tough on the Taliban. One year on since their return to power, we'll consider what the regime really means for the people of Afghanistan. It's now been just over a year since US troops left Afghanistan and the Taliban returned to power. Even before that, the country had seen its economy deteriorating as it suffered from a serious drought, the COVID-19 pandemic and increasing concerns about the stability of the previous government. And in the past year, as sanctions began to bite and international aid payments fell, the economy has all but collapsed. Well, to consider where the Afghan economy is now and where it might go from here, I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Programme and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Centre. Michael, thanks ever so much for joining us. Let's talk about prospects for Afghanistan's economy, because a year on, the currency is more or less back at the level it was before the Taliban retook power. Exports are rising. So what's your outlook?
0: the economy is in a severe crisis but you know those facts that you lay out i think do make clear that to some extent even if to a modest extent the Taliban have been able to adjust to from being an insurgency to being a governing entity and we have seen the Taliban in a position to release a budget uh, the group has been able to ensure uh, government revenue particularly through ensuring that the uh, uh, border trade with several neighboring countries continue its used customs tariffs as a major source of revenue uh, and uh, indeed there are indications that the Taliban that that corruption has gone down in the Taliban era now of course that could be in part because there's not as much money flowing Flowing in from overseas, and obviously, the more money there is flowing in, the more likely it is that there could be corruption. So, certainly, a silver lining in what is otherwise, I think, a very gloom, gloomy outlook for Afghanistan's economic future.
1: It's interesting you talk about realigning because it seems like a very steep uphill battle that, that, that they, they have here. An economist with the, the most experience and the best will in the world would would have a lot to deal with, wouldn't they? Because no international aid with sanctions um, that have been imposed it really regardless of who was governing it was going to be a tough job
0: Oh, absolutely uh, and the facts don't lie i mean this is a country that for many years had been heavily dependent on uh... international assistance uh, at the time of the taliban takeover afghanistan was dependent on um... Foreign grants um, and other international assistance for seventy-five percent of its public its public budget, and so you go from that to a situation where there is basically no international financial assistance coming in at all beyond humanitarian aid. And indeed, this would be a challenge that even the most savvy, experienced governments would struggle to face. Uh, And compounding all of that, of course, is drought um, and you know things like covid and obviously just the tremendous inexperience of the Taliban which for several decades had been a brutal fighting force not not a government so I don't want to overstate the positives here about Afghanistan's economic future Uh, it's just got this terrible terrible challenge given that it was so heavily dependent on foreign assistance for so long and now it basically has none of that foreign assistance coming into the country You talk about
1: that dependence on foreign assistance predating the the Taliban regime, Uh, a number of sanctions still very much in place and some NGOs are saying well you know what maybe now it's time to ease some of the financial restrictions. Do, Do you think that's likely to happen?
0: Well, you know, this is what a case where you have this tension between what seems morally right and what is, is more appropriate in terms of interest, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, we know, we've heard this, uh, senior aid officials over the last year talking about how more than 20 million Afghans are on the verge of starvation. That hasn't changed. That's, that's going to remain the case uh, in the months ahead. Uh, so indeed, there's something to be said for tolerating a bit of risk, and it's essentially saying, okay, we're going to send money into the country to help Afghans, and allow for the possibility that some Taliban members may get their hands on that money and enrich themselves. But that's okay. That's a, that's a sacrifice that's worth making because otherwise you're going to be helping so many Afghans that desperately need funding. But you know, then again, there's there's the interest issue and the legal issues in which you say, okay, well, should we really be doing anything that could risk putting a lot of money in the hands of a group that does not let. Or girls go to school has some of the most draconian um, uh, policies against women anywhere in the world, and also is a group that has remained close to terrorists and sheltered uh, the Al Qaeda leader Ayman al Zawahiri. So that's the that's the tension right there, um, and it's very difficult to overcome that, uh, that that difficult decision. It's really a tough call for sure.
1: You you mentioned those red lines, if you like, the the fact that the fundamental rights are being denied, certainly to, to girls going to school, security issues in terms of terrorist organizations, potential extremists being um, in the country. Uh, Not one country has yet recognized the Taliban as the leaders of Afghanistan. Is it time to change that? Does the world need to engage in in a a more meaningful way?
0: I don't think so, not necessarily. There's a lot that the world can do to engage with Afghanistan in ways that don't involve recognizing the Taliban. And keep in mind, as you know, most, most countries uh, including many countries in the West, not to mention those in in the neighborhood of Afghanistan, are already engaging quite directly with the Taliban. You've had a number of uh, of uh, high level meetings, uh, and so it's not like the Taliban or a pariah. not Not like in the 1990s. Things are different. Um, but I do think that for many countries, especially in the West, it's just not possible politically to be recognizing a regime that does the things I mentioned before. I mean, even the likes of Saudi Arabia don't deny women the right to go to school. And uh, you know, again, do you really want to be formally recognizing a regime that uh, likely, al-Zahwahri? Uh, I think that's a fair argument to be made for that. That said, if there's creative ways of thinking about doing more to help Afghans, in ways that uh, don't require in uh r- recognizing the Taliban regime i mean there's ways of coming up with mechanisms for example to set up funds that could ensure delivery of financial assistance to key public sectors in afghanistan so that school teachers and healthcare workers Employed with the government can get paid. There's ways to figure out um, mechanisms to get funds to infrastructure projects to make sure that there are enough roads and bridges to ensure that basic services can be delivered. None of that necessarily requires recognizing the Taliban regime. It's just a matter of figuring out how to set up the mechanisms that the aid can be put on the ground and delivered in a way that you know that it'll, it'll serve its its purpose. So I think it's about being creative in ways that go around the issue of recognition.
1: We're talking about the Taliban, but it's interesting, isn't it? It's not just one entity, there are lots of of different strands and there are tensions um, within um, the, the Taliban itself, those who want to allow more freedoms and those who are potentially more hardline. How do you think that is affecting the bigger picture?
0: Yeah that's a very important point and uh you know some observers have described these divisions as those between uh, hardliners and moderates but I would go further than that in the sense that you have a number of leaders such as uh members of the Haqqani network which is a really vicious faction of the Taliban that staged all kinds of horrific attacks for many years they were that faction was behind the decision to allow girls to go back to school Uh, so that doesn't seem right I mean could you really say they're 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 moderates in that regard given that they all the horrible things they did during the war but yes these divisions are are serious and basically the main division is that you have you have leaders Taliban leaders in Kabul that are more practically focused want to emphasize engagement with the world more are more concerned about getting recognition and then you have the um, the supreme leadership which is based in Kandahar in Afghanistan which is comprised of of ideologically um, religious Hardliners, mullahs that don't care about that. They're just concerned about the ideological components of the Taliban and not com- compromising on anything. They don't care about recognition, and un- and unfortunately for the world and for Afghans, it's that faction that that calls the shots. Um, but given the fact that you have had these disagreements. And I do think the raid on Ayman al-Zawahiri exacerbated the divisions because there were many Taliban leaders that did not know he was there and were furious about what happened because now, given what happened with that raid, I think it's all but an impossibility that any country is going to recognize the Taliban. Michael
1: Kuhlman, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure talking to you.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Aside from financial difficulties, the latest report from the United Nations on the situation inside Afghanistan has detailed persistent allegations of human rights abuses, extrajudicial killings, arbitrary arrests and detentions, as well as torture. And it has found that life was particularly tough if you're female. A year ago, here on the agenda, we spoke to Afghan MP Farzana Elam Kodchai, who outlined to us her concerns for the future of Afghanistan's women. Since speaking to us last year, Farzana has left Afghanistan and now joins me from Oslo. Farzana, thanks ever so much for, for coming on the agenda.
2: Now, when we last spoke, you were in Kabul. Now you're in Norway. What happened? Yeah, thank you for having me. Actually, after fall of Afghanistan, I was uh, uh, for about a month and some days in Afghanistan, as we were talking last time. The thing is that uh, the situation, as you know, as you know, as everyone knows that Uh, The situation getting worse and worse for women day by day. And I was the first time, I was not expecting that to be this way. But when I faced that, like there was no chance of me staying there and doing what I want to do for myself, my family and my people. So I was thinking that what's good about staying when I can't do anything, I can't offer anything. uh, And even it was possible and it is a reality and women face that, that we ourselves uh, might be in need of help getting help like um, logistically and anyway uh, to continue and to survive so wh- what uh, happened i just decided to uh, leave in, to, um, in order to do something for all that i care
1: for so What is happening now in Kabul? Because a year ago, the Taliban barred female public sector workers um, from government work. They were told to stay at home. Um, How's that affected the the, the work that you do and the voice that you have?
2: Uh, Thank you. Uh, It's a good question, Julie. The thing is that uh, now the recent news about uh, What's happening in Afghanistan you know, uh, for women is the Taliban asked the women employees of Ministry of Finance of finance to introduce a men uh, from their family to, to, uh, to uh, continue the, their job, like they should be staying home. But as they were employees, so they got this fairness, like it's a fairness from the Taliban to them. It's a good thing that they are doing that okay you don't come to your work a man from your family whoever you want can do your job While those female are like technically uh, experts of their jobs they work there for years it, work experience knowledge education everything just put it aside like they are human H- how taliban are removing women from society from every sector like they are uh, implementing their plan to remove women from society completely in 100%, starting by not allowing teenage girls to go to schools. Like this year, we don't have any girl uh, graduating from school and entering the new class of universities. So think about, we are not uh, having uh women um, uh, employees and these all things are happening for women and besides this there are uh, this humanitarian crisis that uh, the 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 situation is chaotic what are you doing to to mobilize more help from abroad me and uh, other uh, people who just made it to safety uh, women men everyone is trying to to just be a voice, and thanks to you that you are giving us platform to do that. Uh, but the thing is, um, after what happened in Ukraine, unfortunately, it um, not just uh, took the support of uh, Ukraine for some people, some Afghans were supported by Ukraine, and they also affected. Uh, but it just completely took the um, attention from Afghanistan away, and it's uh, like a new crisis and something so bad and bigger happen in europe and western countries so that that affected that but we are trying we are um, advocating we are lobbying we try to use any opportunity that we get to raise the voice of people and to just uh, share what's happening there but uh, it's not as personally that can do something like actually in um Actual thing, But we hope that it will happen and someone will uh, do something for the people.
1: And what could the international community do more of to, to help women in Afghanistan?
2: Not just helping women, but this situation, the economic situation, the crisis, the humanitarian uh, situation. That's w- what's happening in Afghanistan at all. It's not just like it's not just in need of uh, AIDS in need of foods and medicine. We we are looking, we are lobbying for something bigger to happen, which is actually the, the, the way, like it, it's actually the main thing that we need. It's a government, it's a responsible government, it's a it's a relation with the region and with the, the, war, the world, and it's bigger than just AIDS. So the, the Western country for women's rights just, Like, they can't go blind. They can't ignore what's happening in Afghanistan. Now, we were facing, and we are facing, like, maybe a thousand, a hundred thousand Taliban fighters. But how we will fight with a generation trained by Taliban and with a system made by Taliban in a few years? Like, if we ignore that, okay, we will ignore. But is it a way to respond to this? Situation that's happening in Afghanistan, which happened. So, I again, like we need, what we need from the international community and um, those who care, like, is to respond to Afghanistan's situation, not just from the lens of, okay, it's just about women or it's just about food that they need, it's just about the medicine that they need. No, it's something so bigger than this. And we all know that it is a threat actually.
1: You mentioned that no girls graduated from from high school this year uh, and that none of them will be going to to university or or graduating from there. That creates a a great big gap, doesn't it, in terms of skills, in in, in terms of um, potential growth. What's your message to
2: the women of Afghanistan? I think I would want to be so brave to just deliver a message to the women in Afghanistan because they are in a situation that they are dealing with a situation they can't do. They are abandoned by everyone, even our neighboring countries are closing the borders and all the countries of the region and everyone, everyone everywhere. It's not just the Taliban abandoning the women and the people of Afghanistan, but I'm sorry for that. It's so It needs uh, so braveness and so courage to deliver a message for the women in that situation. I will just say that I understand, we understand, everyone understand, and we are trying to find a way. But all they need is don't give up and just keep the hope alive. Farzana Kochai, it's been an absolute pleasure
1: talking to you. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you. Welcome back to The Agenda. In the 12 months since the Taliban came back to power, international aid agencies have had to redouble their efforts to help the people of Afghanistan. UNICEF says it helped nearly a quarter of a million children suffering from severe acute malnutrition. And that was just the first six months of 2022 alone. And if things weren't bad enough, Afghanistan's deadliest earthquake in two decades struck the southeast of the country in June. Joining me now from Kabul is Sam Mort, Chief of Communication, Advocacy and Civic Engagement for UNICEF. Afghanistan. Well, thanks ever so much for, for coming back on the programme, because it was a year ago um, when we last spoke to you. You're still in Kabul. So what's changed there during the time um, that ta- the Taliban has come to power?
3: Well, in the context that Afghanistan has suffered for many decades from conflict, insecurity, poverty and natural disaster. I would say in the last 12 months, things have deteriorated further because uh, during the the previous decades, Afghanistan has been one of the most aid dependent countries in the world. And as of August 15, last year, much of that aid uh, was paused. And as a result, um, the economy has collapsed. The health sector has been compromised as has the education sector. And so one year on, the country remains in crisis and it's really a child rights crisis because when we look at the last year, we see that more children, including girls, are out of school. We see that families are struggling to put food on the table. We're seeing that there's higher unemployment. We know a lot of women have now been asked to stay at home. Um, and so overall, uh, the the country is in, is in crisis and it's the children who are suffering the most. We'll dig into the crisis
1: in a moment,
3: but I, I want to ask you, you, Sam, how
1: safe do you feel in Afghanistan at the moment?
3: Well, um, as the events of the last week have demonstrated, Afghanistan remains unpredictable and and volatile, so I don't think anybody ever feels 100% safe. But what I can tell you and, and reassure everyone is that UNICEF has a top class security apparatus who on one hand uh, look after us very well and have our safety and security uh, top of mind but also do so in a way that enables us to reach out all over the country to help the children most in need.
1: And What are your dealings with the Taliban leadership?
3: Well, UNICEF doesn't work unilaterally in any country. We are here and we can only do our work in coordination and in collaboration with the, uh, the, the de facto authorities in this case and in other countries, it's, it's a government. So we work with them on a daily basis. We keep them abreast of, of what we're doing and where we're going. Um, and they are increasingly asking questions and showing interest in our work. Um, the earthquake, as you mentioned, uh, was a good example recently where the de facto authorities reached out to us in the early hours um, of uh, June 22nd, asking for UNICEF's support to do a needs analysis in the villages that are affected. And so we went down, we worked with the de facto authorities to do the needs analysis and uh, respond to the communities with uh, emergency aid. You talk about
1: that emergency aid and you've said that Afghanistan remains an aid-dependent country. Uh, Aid is still being sent into the country. The central bank said a further $40 million worth was deposited in in the past few days. So is that enough or anywhere near enough?
3: Well, humanitarian aid, you're correct, is coming into the country and UNICEF is is receiving it and and delivering that aid all over Afghanistan. We have 13 offices nationwide, so we're well positioned to support uh, the enormous humanitarian crisis that is unfolding here. Um, in terms of funding, no, it's it's not enough. UNICEF has a humanitarian action for children appeal at two billion dollars, and so far it is only 35% funded. We're over halfway through the year, winter is approaching and we desperately need more funds to meet these growing needs. One of the um Uh, consequences of the end of the conflict last August was that more of the country has opened up and so UNICEF is now able to get into communities that have never had healthcare, never had a nutrition counsellor, the children have never gone to school, they've never drunk safe water and so the needs have grown um, and that's why the funding uh, target is is so big and why we're desperate for, for the global community to continue funding us.
1: That's the funding. But what else could the the global community be be doing? Do you think that there should be engagement or more engagement with the Taliban?
3: I think that in order to move forward in Afghanistan, all channels of communication must remain open. That dialogue is absolutely critical. Here at UNICEF, uh, we're deeply concerned about the rollback of girls and women's rights and the restrictions of civil civil liberties that we're seeing. And we're talking to the de facto authorities every single day, advocating with them, trying to help them understand how important it is for girls to go to school and to learn, not just uh, for their own uh, future success, but how they're going to contribute to the economy in the future. And that progress, it, it might seem slow, it might seem frustrating at times, but it is only achieved through dialogue. And I think that is the message to, to all global leaders that that dialogue
1: must continue. Now, even before the Taliban took back power, you had an agreement with them, didn't you, about education and with girls in particular. It was to introduce community-based education for over 100,000 children, including
3: girls, importantly. So where are you now with that deal? Well, I'm happy to tell you that right now, we have got 10,000 community-based education classes up and running, and for your viewers, these are small, informal classes that can take place in rural and remote communities. It might be in a tent, it might be in a mosque, it might be in somebody's front room. UNICEF pays for the teacher, the classes follow the Ministry of Education curriculum, and we provide the teaching and learning materials, things like the the blackboards and the, the backpacks. By the end of the year, we will have 17,000 of these classes nationwide, and that means that we're going to be catering for 500,000 children. Over half of these children are girls. It is our best way to nurture a love of learning um, in some of Uh, The most conservative areas of Afghanistan, and to give children um, a a basic foundation of of literacy and numeracy and and civic understanding to help them uh, throughout life. So we're very pleased that that uh, program is expanding and that we have the support of the de facto authorities to do that. Sam Mort from UNICEF,
1: thank you very much.
3: Thank you. For now, from me, Juliet Mann, and
0: from all of the Agenda team here in London. Goodbye.